We're going to be concluding our series in 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, that is on page 1023. Goes over to 1024. Well, I have a love-hate relationship with instruction manuals. The worst is kids' toys, right? Parents, you can probably relate to this. Christmas time, all these presents get open. There's just stuff everywhere. The kid comes running up, got some new toy, and wants you to put it together, right? I remember distinctly being probably like 9 or 10, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe just a little bit older, but... I had a little cousin who was eight years younger than me, and he was, he was young, and we were at a family Christmas, and I remember he got some, like, tractor or something that my uncle had to put together, and I just remember my aunt and uncle, like, going at it about putting this toy together, and she's, like, telling him to hurry up, and he's just fumbling through this instruction manual, and just, I've, that probably scarred me for life, but um, for me, it's, it's a catch-22 when it comes to instruction manuals. Uh, I'm a little bit OCD. Uh, I'm very, very detail-oriented, and I want to I do things right. I want to follow all the instructions. And so when I get an instruction manual, I want to I make sure I do it the right way. But on the other hand, I'm pretty handy most of the time, and I can, I can figure things out, like the example with the sander, right? I'm like, oh, I got this. I'll just, I'll just do it my own way. And there's been many times where I've put an entire thing together, and it's like backwards, or something is just totally wrong, or I've like actually like broke the thing because I did it the wrong way. Well, if you're like me, there are pitfalls on both sides. The first one is that we follow the manual to a T and we find our justification in that. I did it the right way. I did all the right things, right? Kind of like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, well, I've kept all the rules. What else do I need to do? Or the other side is that you ignore the manual because you think that you can make it on your own. You think that you've got it figured out and you don't need anybody's help and you can take care of it. And the problem is not with the instruction manual. The instruction manual is, is neutral. It might be written poorly, but the instruction manual is there to help you. The problem is with the operator, right? The problem is with our hearts, and the way that we approach the instruction manual. And as we wrap up First John this morning, after 12 weeks of being reminded of who we are in Christ, of being reminded of all that God has done for us in Christ, my prayer is that we will see the love and the care that God has for us as his people, that we will look to him and the instruction manual that he gave us for answers to life's most challenging questions. So let's go to the text as we see John's summary statement of why he wrote this letter and see some concluding remarks that will tie all of this together. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we come to your word this morning asking that you would show us your plan. Show us your will. Show us your glory. God, that we would come before your instruction manual, not trying to figure out how we can do the right things and how we can do enough on our own, but that we would submit our lives to you. We would submit our lives to your will, your perfect will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to frame the message this morning around one theme and then look at it through a certain set of lenses. The theme is assurance. We've been looking at 1 John, and I've been arguing from the very beginning that the book of 1 John is all about assurance. Uh, Title of the message, What's It All About? This is what it's all about. It's about assurance. So we're going to be looking at that throughout the message. And then the lenses that we're going to be using, the kind of the spectacles that we're going to be putting on for a framework is the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation framework. And there's two reasons that we're going to do that. First is we look backwards with the creation, fall, and redemption segments. We look back at what God has already done in history, what God has already accomplished. In other words, what does the manual say? What does the whole Bible tell us from Genesis to Revelation about creation and fall and redemption, but especially in 1 John where we've been, what does 1 John tell us about these areas of creation, fall, and redemption? So that's looking back. Then we look forward to consummation. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, to life eternal, which last week I argued that we already have eternal life. John is promising us and reminding us and assuring us that we already have eternal life if we are in Christ. So there's that already element. But it's also something that is not yet. It's something that we have not yet fully experienced. There is something that we are looking forward to. And the consummation of all things has not happened yet. And it won't happen until Christ returns. So there's the looking back, creation, fall, redemption, and looking forward to consummation. And this 
I hope will help kind of prime the pump uh, for our summer sermon series in the Psalms because we're going to be going through this creation, fall, redemption, consummation framework as we go through the Psalms. So just kind of starting to, to get our minds thinking about those things. So the first thing that John is going to talk about here, the first area of assurance is assurance of salvation. And we see that right away here in verse 13. This is kind of the summary verse. If you want a summary verse of all of 1 John, what it's all about, this is, this is it right here. So he's kind of wrapping up everything he said, and then he's going to give us some final reminders. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the whole purpose that John is writing for is so that those who believe in Jesus will know, will have certainty and assurance that they have eternal life. And that's in the here and now, that we already have eternal life. So the, the main, again, the main issue of assurance here that John is talking about is the assurance of our salvation. And we know that because John is writing to believers. He's writing to those who already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He wrote in his gospel at the end of John, he kind of, there's a similar statement in chapter 20 that he's writing so that they may believe. And he's, there he's writing to people who don't yet believe in the gospel. So that whole gospel, the whole gospel of John, the whole account is written to testify to Jesus, to who he is, so that people will believe in him. Now he's writing to those who already believe, and he's writing to assure them that these, these things I've been talking about are true if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm writing to assure you that these are true and that you have eternal life. So those of you who believe in Jesus, know, know with certainty that you have eternal life. And we talked about this last week, John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it doesn't just start when we die, right? It doesn't just start when we get to the other side. It starts when we believe in Jesus. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it starts when we come to know Jesus by grace, through faith, when we put our trust in him, that is when Eternal life starts for us, and John writes to reassure those who have already placed their trust in Christ. So this whole letter of 1 John is, is really built upon creation, fall, and redemption themes. Uh, John doesn't necessarily use that language, but these themes are throughout the letter. We see the creation theme in chapter 1 where God is light. There's creation language being used there. Jesus is the eternal life who was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then we see the effects of the fall. Talking about walking in darkness. How we're called to, to walk in the light and not walk in the darkness. But the world is, is full of darkness. We're called to confess our sin. John talks about the Antichrist who deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in this chapter, in this section we're looking at, verse 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we see the effects of the fall everywhere in the world around us as we look around and as we experience the sins and struggles in our own lives. And then this theme of redemption is really, really all throughout the book. John talks about this over and over. He talks about how we've been born of God how we've overcome the world, 
Because God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's in chapter 4, verse 10. John is, is reiterating and hammering home the idea that the cross of Jesus Christ is our only hope of redemption, our only hope of reconciliation with the Father, our only hope of eternal life. And John has made it clear that Jesus' substitutionary death and belief in Jesus as the only way that we will receive and experience eternal life. So this is that element of looking back. We look back at creation, fall, redemption, what God has already done. It's rejoicing in what God has done for us in Christ. And most of the Bible fulfills this purpose. Most of what is here for us from Genesis to up to Revelation is about past things. It's about what's already happened in history. It points to what God has accomplished to save his people from sin and death and the evil one. And it is good for us in our lives to look back, not only at the story of Scripture, but at the story of our own lives, to remember and to see what God has done in our own lives. It's like looking back over an old photo album. Uh, this Last week, I had my mom uh, send me some pictures uh, of me growing up, pictures from when I was one uh, to about 18. I, I had a little project that I that I did this week with my son, Cademan, and he had to see a bunch of pictures of me at all these different stages in my life. And it brought back uh, some memories. Uh, some of them were, were good memories, and some of them weren't the greatest memories. Um, but looking at what God has done in my life throughout that time, and the, the last one was a picture of me in my high school football uniform. That was probably like about a year before I became a believer. And, uh, you know, just seeing how God changed me after that season that I was in and, and being able to rejoice with my son and sh- kind of share my life story with him. But when we share those stories, then, when we share those testimonies about what God has done in our lives and we speak with others, it's kind of like flipping through that photo album of our life. And it's saying, these are the things that made me the person that I am today, good, bad, or indifferent And this is how God has worked in my life. And this is how God has saved me by his grace. And this present tense confidence of of this is where we are. This is who I am today. This is what God has done. This confidence and assurance is what John turns to next as he discusses the assurance that we can have that our prayers will be heard by God. And this is really, I think verse 14 here is really one of the key verses in all of Scripture to help us answer the question that is so often asked, maybe we ask it, or we, we've heard other people ask this question, why doesn't God hear my prayers? Which really means, why doesn't God give me what I want, <laughs> right? Why doesn't God give me what I want? And the answer is that God isn't concerned with what we want, If it's not according to his will. I want to read a quote from from John Stott from his commentary on this issue about prayer. He says, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours. But the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, And align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. 
And there is no clearer picture of submission to the Father's will than the very Son of God himself praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus prayed to his Father, not my will, but yours be done, how much more ought we needy creatures pray in that same way? John adds a further promise in verse 15. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is not just some kind of name-it-claim-it theology. I'm just going to ask for it, and God's just going to give me whatever I ask for. It's praying according to his will, and it's knowing that if we are praying according to God's will, that he will answer us. He will hear us, and he will answer us. That is the promise here in verse 15. So how does the creation, fall, redemption, consummation framework help us to think about prayer? We're probably going to be talking about that a lot this summer as we're going through the Psalms. We'll be talking about the the Psalms, which are are prayers and and songs of God's people. But how in general does does that framework help us here? I think our prayers of praise and our prayers of petition can be informed by these categories. Praising God for his creation. Petitioning God that his creation order would be upheld. There are a whole host of issues going on in our day right now. A whole host of of cultural issues and social issues that are a result of God's created order not being followed, not being upheld. And I think when we think about those issues, it's easy to just get frustrated, right? It's easy to get mad at the culture. It's easy to get frustrated with, with people or with institutions. But how often do we pray and cry out to God that his creation order that he has so clearly laid out in this world, that it would be honored and that it would be upheld? How often do we cry out to him about those things? Or how often are we just on Facebook ranting and, and going crazy about how messed up the world is? How often do we pray that the effects of the fall would be overcome in people's lives as they come to know Christ? How often do we pray that people would not be taken captive by this world and by the things of this world? We can pray for believers who are struggling in sin. We see this here in verses 16 and 17. We can pray that God will give them life. We can pray that they will walk in the reality of the redemption that is theirs in Christ. These verses here, verses 16 and 17, I think last week we talked about Um, the verse that the water, the spirit and the water and the blood, the three that testify and some commentators said like that's one of the hardest verses to understand in the whole New Testament. Um, I think this one is is right up there, this idea of, of praying for people and the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death. Um, we don't know exactly what John is talking about here. There's, there's a lot of different views, um, whether, it's spiritual death or physical death. Uh, there's, I think there are good scriptural reasons to believe in both of those. Uh, whether he's talking about praying for believers or unbelievers. And, and commentators are kind of all over the place on this. So we're not going to get kind of wrapped up in that. Um, I think probably the, the safest bet, just based on context, based on what John has been talking about throughout this letter, 
is that the sin that leads to death is likely denial that Jesus is the Son of God. It's what John has been covering a great deal, talking about the Antichrist, those who, who deny that Jesus is the Christ. Um, that is most likely what John is talking about here, the sin that will ultimately lead to spiritual and eternal death um, is not trusting in Jesus. So we can, we can pray in that regard. And though John doesn't mention it here, uh, certainly we ought to pray in light of consummation, in light of our future hope. We ought to pray, as it says at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. That ought to be the cry of our hearts, that he will return, that he will come quickly, as he said he would. We should be asking God to give us endurance as we wait in joyful hope for Jesus' return. That he would keep us that he would protect us, that he would remind us of the assurance that we have and that of our secure standing that we have with him. And this is then the subject of what John addresses next in verses 18 to 20. He's going to talk here about the assurance of our right standing with God and the assurance of our union with Christ. John concludes here in these verses with three more statements of assurance, and he repeats the phrase, we know. Okay, what is it that we know? All these things John's going to talk about are things he's been talking about over and over throughout this letter. If you remember, 1 John is a very cyclical book. Uh, He kind of repeats a lot of the same stuff over and over. So these are things that he's talked about. The first is, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, verse 18. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So he's talked a lot about what it means that we're, we're born of God. Uh, we, we are born of God, and we, we believe in Jesus. And this idea of not keeping on sinning, it doesn't, we've talked about this earlier, I think it was in chapter 2. It doesn't say that Christians will never sin, but this idea, the way John talks about it is if you're in Christ, if you are a believer, you're not going to continually live habitually in patterns of sin. And we see that in chapter 1 about confessing our sins to Christ. Confessing and asking for forgiveness. So we saw that already earlier. And now John's going to add another layer to this equation. Talking about he who was born of God, literally he who was begotten of God, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So Jesus protects us, and the evil one does not touch us. You can also translate the word touch as harm or injure. So the the evil one cannot ultimately harm us or injure us because we are protected by Jesus, by the Son of God. Because we are his, we have been born of God, we are God's sons and daughters, and Jesus protects us. Okay, the second thing, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are from God. We are not from this world. And John, throughout this letter, has been making contrasts over and over. Contrasts between light and darkness, between love and hate, between confessing Jesus and rejecting Jesus. There's all kinds of contrasts. And he's saying here, we are from God and we are not from this world. Because this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We used to belong to this world. But if we are in Christ, we have been born again. We have been rescued. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus through his death on the cross in our place. And the world, 
which lies in the power of the evil one. This world is no longer our home. Third, verse 20. We know that Jesus has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus has come. He has given us understanding through his spirit and through his word that we can know him, we can know about him, and we can know him personally. And John says it there, so that we may know him who is true. Him giving us, him coming and him giving us understanding, him revealing himself to us is for a purpose. So that we may know him, that we may know him who is true. And then he says, we are in him who is true. We are in Christ if we believe in him. This idea of union with Christ, being in Christ, is something that John has talked about throughout this letter. And he's used the word to to abide or to remain, to abide in him, right? Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be in Christ. We need to abide in him and remain in him. And then we will bear fruit. So John points us back. He highlights the glorious realities of who we are in Christ. Reminds us that the God who created us and loved us did not abandon us to our own ways despite our rebellion and our fall into sin. In fact, he sent his own son for us that we might know the Father, that we might see the Father. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That we might have life, eternal life in Jesus, who is the true God. So what's it all about? It's about assurance, and it's about assurance of eternal life. Knowing the true God and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's what you were made for. That's why you exist. That's why you're sitting here today with breath in your lungs and with blood running through your veins. This is the answer to life's deepest questions. The creation question. Why is there something instead of nothing? The fall question. Why is the world the way it is? The redemption question. How can things be made right? How can things be restored to the way they were supposed to be? And the consummation question, is there any hope for our future? Is there any hope beyond this life? No doubt many of us wrestle with these very questions ourselves. And we're surrounded by a culture that is so confused about these matters. But we've been given the answers, brothers and sisters. We've been given the answers to these questions in the instruction manual. And it's not necessarily like how you put a toy together, right? It's not a one, two, three, do this, use these tools, and voila, it all just magically works. But it's also not some strange riddle, right? 
I had another manual I was looking at, and it was all in Spanish. I don't read Spanish. I'm like, if I would have looked at that instruction manual, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to get anything done, right? Maybe some pictures will be helpful. But the Bible is not like trying to figure things out in a language that you don't understand or you can't even read. The answer to all of those questions, the questions that we ask, the questions that the world around us is asking, the answer to those questions is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who has been revealed to us in God's holy word. The one who John has been testifying about since chapter 1, verse 1. And you would think that John would have ended his letter with verse 20. With this grandiose statement about the truth of who Jesus is. But John brings his readers back down to earth, if you will. I had kind of an experience that made me think of it this this week. Uh, Caveman and I went to Six Flags, Great America, and... Uh, I hadn't been there in like 25 years since I was in junior high. I was a little nervous, uh, like going on all these rides. We went on like 10 rides all day long. And if you haven't been there yet, Goliath is like the most amazing roller coaster of all time. We only went on it once because like we couldn't handle going on it again. Like I would go on it again if I went again, but like it was so crazy. And it was just like the craziest rush, loops, fast, everything. And... Like, that's how I kind of feel like, you know, John was, like, ending on the Goliath ride. (laughs) But then he comes back down to earth, right? He brings us back to our feet. You're off the ride. You're trying to catch your breath. And it's like, okay, back to reality. He brings us back, and he reminds us that life isn't like the roller coaster, right? You might feel like your life is a roller coaster, but life isn't just this, always this thrill thing, right? Life is, is getting your feet back on the ground, and living the, the normal day-to-day Christian life. He reminds us that we still have a lot of work to do. That although our redemption is secure, we can have assurance of our eternal standing with God in Christ. There is still an enemy who wants to destroy our souls. There are still antichrists and false teachers, which is one of the big issues he's been writing about, who want to cause us to walk away from the truth who want to cause us to walk away from Christ. And there is a world system around us that is intent on deceiving us. And we need to have our feet firmly planted on the ground. We need to see things clearly. We need to not be upside down in a loop-de-loop. We need to be standing firmly with our feet planted on the ground. And that's why John ends with verse 21 which seems like a strange ending after this whole letter, right? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols by running to the one who has promised to keep you, to protect you so that the world and the evil one may not touch you. Brothers and sisters, until the consummation is complete, until Jesus returns or until God calls us home. This is our charge. Keep ourselves from idols. And he's not talking here about shiny objects. He's not saying, you know, go throw away the Buddha statues and and get rid of all these, these trinkets and idols that are on your shelves or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about false Christs. 
He's talking about empty replacements that we have, that we set up in the place of Jesus. He's talking about things in our hearts that take God's place. That's idolatry. And he says, keep yourselves from those things. Put Jesus on the throne of your, of your life. Make him central. Make him first place. And don't do it by stick-to-itiveness. Don't do it by your own efforts, by just trying harder. But by living out the eternal life that is already ours in Christ. By experiencing the joy of the victory that is already ours in Christ. As we wait in joyful hope for his glorious return. Let's pray. God, you have given us so many reminders in your word. You have painted so many pictures. You've told so many stories of of what you have done. You have given us the truth of who you are, of what you have done in, in sending your son to come, to take on human flesh, to live and die in our place, to rise again from the dead. To give us the promise that if we are in Christ, we will be raised one day with him. So as we look back, creation, fall, redemption, as we rejoice in in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, and in who we are in Christ, God, we we also want to look forward. We want to look forward in joyful hope. We want to look forward in assurance of what you have done for us. God, we want to live lives in this world that are pleasing to you. We want to abide in Christ. We want to obey your commandments. God, it is by the power of your spirit that we can do those things. It's not on our own strength. It's not by our own wisdom. God, by your spirit, would you give us the power to keep ourselves from idols, to walk with Christ, to walk the narrow path that he has called us to, so that the world around us would see, that they would see our love for one another, that they would see that we are your disciples, that they would trust in Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.